Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. You said it yourself, Ben. You just can't get around the DNA in this case. Most people who think that Cho's guilty, they can't either. The jury definitely couldn't. So it's time we address the most important part of Robin Cho's case. It's time to talk about the DNA. So on this episode, we're traveling to the Serological Research Institute in Richmond, California. It's the lab that did the second round of DNA testing in Robin Cho's case. This is where evidence from so many cases gets analyzed and reported. The information used in deciding the fates of so many people. So we're pulling back the curtain. We're going where few people ever get to go to see how this gold standard of evidence worked in the Cho case. And if there's anything that could shed new light on these crimes. I'm Sharon Choi. And I'm Ben Adair. And you're listening to Strangeland, Season 1, The Koreatown Murders. This is Episode 9. The DNA. The Serological Research Institute, or CIRI, is in the San Francisco Bay Area, in a suburb called Richmond, California. From the outside, it's your basic office park building. Low-rise, gray walls, mirrored windows, bright blue trim. You'd have no idea that the outcomes of investigations and trials are being decided right inside. When I first started, I didn't know much about forensic DNA analysis. I had no idea how to do criminal casework. This is Angela Butler. She's a senior forensic DNA analyst at Siri. She conducted some of the critical DNA testing leading up to the Cho case in 2011 and 2012. Hey, that's awesome. She's the one who testified in court too, right? Yeah, exactly. She testified in trial that Robin Cho's DNA was almost certainly at the crime scene. So DNA testing is one of those things we see on TV and in the movies. And it seems pretty simple, right? Super simple. The cops come and collect a bunch of things, and then the scientists come and do a bunch of science, and then bam, trial, you're done. Yeah, not really. It's a lot more complicated than that. I don't know how detailed you want to get, but basically you start with the blood on the swab and you end up with a series of numbers, which is collectively called your DNA profile. When you first walk into Siri, it kind of reminds you of a high school biology classroom. Tidy workstations, microscopes, and pipettes. No lab coats, though. 
But as you go further into the lab, the rooms fill up with expensive, futuristic-looking gadgets. Things that look like super fancy microwaves with UV lights inside of them. Big white plastic boxes that kind of look like safes, full of test tubes, that kind of thing. And this is where the complicated stuff happens. In forensic DNA analysis, you're looking at just a very small portion of your entire DNA makeup. These small portions of your DNA that analysts are looking at, these are the genetic markers. And you can basically look at these small genetic markers, these small repeats on the chromosome. And because they're highly variable, you can distinguish people from one another because they have very rare types. And with the exception of identical twins, um, you get statistics that are in the... I recently got one that was in the non-millions. Uh, so there hasn't even been that many people on the planet. So Sharon, how do they actually do the testing? Like, what do they actually receive? What do they do with it? So as you could probably guess, anything that's found at a crime scene might have DNA on it. So sometimes we receive a sample that is actually a swab that was taken at a crime scene, say a blood stain from a wall. And so it's actually, it looks much like a Q-tip with, with blood on it. And so you take that sample and you need to extract the DNA from that blood stain. And that is what we're actually doing the DNA testing on. Other times the samples or the evidence consists of the actual items found at a crime scene, uh, such as hair or weapons or clothing, variety of things. So we have to employ methods to remove samples from that evidence. So once you get the blood, hair, or skin cells, or whatever it may be, off the swab or object, you put it in a little tube and you use several chemicals, which then open up the cell. Butler is explaining the most common type of DNA testing, which is STR testing. It's also known as nuclear DNA testing, as in the nucleus of a cell inside of the cell's DNA. And so once that chemical works its magic, then it has to be purified. After purifying it, you have to figure out whether there's any measurable amount of DNA in that sample. So there's an instrument for that. It'll tell you how much you have, whether there's male DNA, whether there's female DNA, and if the sample is degraded. The next step is to make lots and lots of copies of that DNA through a process known as PCR. You tell the juries, it's like a genetic photocopier. You have these little tubes, you have all your ingredients, you have your starting DNA material, and at the end of the process, you know, from one copy, you have millions of copies. And after the PCR process, you put it on an instrument and then you do your data analysis with a complex software and then you're able to make comparisons. Could this person be the source of the DNA profile? So then you make a lot of interpretations. The interpretations and comparisons are where the words get a little weird. DNA matches are usually expressed in terms of likelihood. Likelihood that a profile does or does not contain a specific person's DNA. For example, on one of the latex glove fragments, 
there's a likelihood of 1 in 319 million that it's someone besides Cho. In other words, it could potentially be someone else. But it's very, very, very unlikely. Oh, okay. I'm starting to get it. It all sounds super sensitive. So what about contamination or things getting mixed up at the lab? Yeah, this is a huge concern for Siri. It's called chain of custody. Sure, chain of custody. I've heard of that. That's something that is important for all evidence. You have to make sure that nothing's tampered with, that everything remains as it was found at the scene. So probably at Siri, that's even more important. Right. So at Siri, chain of custody is way more hardcore than even with other types of evidence. They have to keep everything as pure as possible. Scientists document basically everything they do with any and all samples. As we talked, Butler checked her notes on the Cho case so she could talk about exactly what happened with those samples. We take the item out. And the first thing we have to do is document the packaging photographically. And we have what's called an exhibit sheet where we make sketches and we even make note of the dimensions of the packaging, how it was received, and then open it up and see what there is. Take more photos. Basically, when someone were to get my file, they would look at that exhibit sheet and they would know exactly. It was like, oh, this is, this is, it's like a little story. What did it look like? What did you do with it? And then what? Ceres also designed all these little workflows to protect chain of custody. They've even designed a traffic flow. The entire laboratory is laid out such that everything moves forward, like a one-way street. Like DNA extraction happens in one specific room. Then the next will handle DNA purification, and purification only. So by design, samples won't get cross-contaminated or lost within the lab. There's no back and forth, just forward through the process of DNA analysis. You know, Sharon, this is a pretty huge contrast to everything we talked about in the last episode. The fingerprint analysis, the forensic document analysis. This process seems so diligent. There's a lot of steps, a lot of rigor and purpose. I mean, if DNA is going to be the gold standard of forensic evidence, this is what you need. Totally. So now that we understand how this all works, let's dive into the DNA evidence that convicted Robin Cho. That's coming up right after the break. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So just as a quick bit of context, when the crimes originally happened in 2003, 
LAPD tested the genetic evidence left on the latex glove fragments found at the scene of the crime. But at the time, it didn't match any DNA profiles in any DNA databases. Right, but then Robin Cho pled guilty to his fraud charges in 2008, and his DNA matched with the results the LAPD had collected in 2003. So before Cho's trial started in 2012, the remaining DNA evidence was sent to Siri, to Angela Butler. I mean, Sharon, that's a long time, from 2003 to 2012. What was actually left for her to test? So as far as what I received for testing, I received several hairs. These are the hairs we learned about from court documents. We mentioned them in episode five, when we covered Robin Cho's trial. And I received previously extracted DNA. So what that means, it's a very small tube with clear colorless liquid. And then there were the latex glove fragments. I was expecting, you know, as if somebody cut off the tip of a, of a glove. Um, and that's what I was going to be testing. But in actuality, it was a, there were very small pieces of a, of a yellow brown material. And very small, it almost looked like debris, was crumbling. Which makes sense, latex degrades over time. I actually used a piece of a swab that was moistened in sterile water to actually go and swab all of those fragments and try to recover any adhering biological material that could be on those fragments. And those were the fragments that were presented at trial. Remember, three of them proved either untestable or statistically insignificant, but two of them strongly linked to Robin Cho. And the hairs weren't tested because some of the roots had dried up. Right. That's a bummer about those hairs. I wonder what they could have learned from them if they'd been able to test them. Yeah, for sure. But I really wanted to know all the details about what Butler could test. The gloves. Specifically, I wanted to see what she thought about this theory that Andrew Flyer looked into, along with his investigator, George Little, and that you and I have talked about as well. The theory that someone found a pair of Robin Cho's gloves lying around the garage of his apartment building and then took them and used them to commit the murders. Well, I suppose anything is possible. Now, as far as the DNA evidence goes, if someone were to find whether it's a pair of gloves, whether it's a hat or a clothing and, and find it and then put it on, there's a potential of finding a mixture. So not only the person that if somebody else wore it, then the next person that put it on or, you know, a partial profile. So there, there is that, um, it, it happens. So maybe, maybe it's possible. Maybe. And honestly, we kind of went down a rabbit hole trying to figure this out. You know, people do shed their, their DNA, and some people are known as what's called shedders. It sounds ridiculous, I, I realize that. But some people shed their DNA, they do. And some people, they can hold an object and not shed their DNA. Um, so not only is it in skin cells, but it's in perspiration and oils. And, and it also depends on how long you have it on. It also depends on friction and temperature. So it has come up, um, you know, somebody finds a hat and then puts it on and then throws it down and 
you know, is it possible to find that second person's DNA on the hat just putting it on for a moment? Well, yes, it is possible. And then you have to explain it further. Does the DNA evidence suggest that? So someone could have found Cho's gloves, put them on, and then committed the murders. Like Butler said, it's possible. But does the DNA evidence suggest that? And here, with the glove fragments, it doesn't. Because there wasn't another profile in any of the samples that Siri tested. Most likely, very, very likely, it's just Cho. Right. But the way the DNA played out in this case made me wonder about one more thing. So the DNA was first tested in 2003. Then Siri tested it again, before the trial. That's a long time. Plus, now it's been nine years since Cho's trial. And given how quickly technology can change and improve, well, maybe DNA testing had changed in the years since. Hmm, good question. Has it? Kinda. The actual technology, the DNA profile, getting it has not changed. The process of getting it has not changed. What has changed is how quickly you can get some of the stuff done and the number of genetic markers that you can test. And so there were 13 genetic markers. And since the 13, we've increased to 21. Basically, they're testing more genetic markers now. So DNA analysis has gotten much more sensitive. Other than that, the, the science is still the same. Hmm. Okay. So does the greater accuracy ever cause any older results to change? Like, say they retested the samples from Robin Cho's case now. Would different results be possible? I asked Butler that, and she was pretty confident in her answer. I have done many cases, and I actually have cases right now that I had worked on 10 years ago, and now, because of the sensitivity or different collection method, so can you go back and see if you can get anything else? And I've gotten more, but I've never gone back and gotten a different answer. I mean, Sharon, look, I got to be honest. Even more than before, I just can't get around the DNA. This is real hardcore science. There are so many regulations in place to preserve and maintain the evidence. And, you know, it is possible that someone took Cho's gloves from the parking lot and wore them? I don't know, it just doesn't seem all that likely to me. Yeah, I see what you mean. I was hoping to hear something from Butler that would crack this open in a different light, or give us room to ask some more questions. But it mostly seemed like this was it. Like we had discovered all there was to know. But then she told me something very unexpected, something that Siri did not do when they tested these samples for trial. Because of how these samples were tested, there's some evidence that faded into the background, but it could, in fact, have major implications for this case. And that's coming up right after the break. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. 
and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So by this point in our interview, we had mostly talked about the glove fragments, how they were disintegrating, how she was able to extract some DNA from them, and then run STR testing on them. But eventually, I had to ask about the hairs. Yes, the mysterious hairs. I was really hoping you'd bring these up. Back when Siri did their testing, some of their roots had dried up, so none of the hairs were tested. But here's my first question. Where did these hairs even come from? Given that the murders happened in a bathroom, potentially there's a lot of hair lying around. Did the cops just grab all of them? That's a good question. Why these hairs? I got a sort of a explanation, a, a brief explanation as to actually only a couple of items. Like I have it in handwritten notes. One item it just says, um, I put in notes, jacket, sweatshirt, abdomen. So presumably these were hairs that were collected from these areas and the others were called scalp hairs and another one labeled pubic hair. Okay, so it doesn't seem like these are just random hairs. Maybe they were hairs that stuck out to the investigators at the crime scene for some reason. Right. So Butler, when she received the hairs, did her own examination. And so the first thing you have to do is look at those hairs microscopically. And I'm not a hair examiner, but I'm trained to look at certain characteristics of hairs. And so we take a picture of it under the microscope, and then we determine whether it's suitable for conventional DNA testing. Um, getting a DNA profile, and you need a, a hair root in order to do that. And so if it doesn't have a hair root, or if the root is very small and is kind of withering, it may not have a lot of DNA still contained in that root. So if there's no root, you have to proceed to a different type of testing, which is called mitochondrial DNA testing. Wait, what is mitochondrial DNA testing? This isn't what we were talking about earlier, right? Correct. It's a completely different type of DNA test. So mitochondria are found outside of the nucleus. And this type of testing is good for, you know, identification of remains. So we do a lot of bones or teeth, hairs without roots. And because they're not examining nuclear DNA, the testing is also different. And so you're looking at the individual sequence um, of a person's um, mitochondria, and you're sequencing that. So you would compare it to a known sample and you would say, could these two uh, sequences, are they the same or are they different? And if they are the same, then they could be from the same maternal lineage. So that's one of the big differences with mito testing. The type of DNA you're dealing with is passed down from mothers. So anyone directly related via mothers would match to the same mito profile. 
and you can do a database search to see if that profile or the, the sequence has ever been seen before. And oftentimes if it has, it will tell you the number of hits and where those hits originated and give a geographic location of where those hits uh, were observed. Wait, this makes it sound like the hairs could be tested, just not with the traditional methods. That's right. They could. But there's a few reasons they weren't. It is my understanding that um, we were focused on STR analysis because LAPD had isolated uh, these hairs and had determined that there was a root present. And so Mito is, is kind of your last option. Certainly STRs is better than, than Mito. Mito is definitely useful, but if you have a choice and you're looking to identify a person, STRs is, is far more useful than, than Mito. So some of that goes back to what Butler just said. The sequencing you get from Mito testing will identify a maternal lineage, not a specific individual. So for example, Ben, you and your mom would have the same mitochondrial sequence. Now compare that to what Butler said earlier, that some of her nuclear testing had given her an answer in the non-nillions, which is a one with 30 zeros after it. But with mito testing, it's not as discriminating. And that's just because of the way that it's inherited. You know, if you have an inclusion, you have an inclusion, but then, okay, well, well then what does that mean? How many other people are estimated to have that mitochondrial profile? Um, so um, that's why it's kind of a last resort um, because there's other, hopefully, other things in the case that might provide better information. Also, mito is much more expensive. Mitochondrial DNA testing is about twice as much as STR analysis. A lot of it is done by hand, so meaning it's not automated. And uh, there's a series of procedures, some steps that are very, very tedious and time-consuming. It takes about twice as long uh, to do that type of test um, than it does to do a, a typical uh, DNA test. All of which is to say that the hairs weren't suitable for STR testing and they left it at that. But then later in the interview, when we were talking about how DNA technology has or hasn't changed over time, Butler said something that kind of jolted me. If you have a DNA profile and it is incomplete or it's complicated, and to throw your hands up and say, I can't do anything with it, or eh, it's just, it's not enough. I would also want to know though, well, does that exclude this person of interest, because that's important information. If their DNA types are not there, that's information. And so I started thinking, these hairs hadn't been tested, but what if they excluded the person of interest? What if they excluded Robin Cho? That would be huge. It'd be yet another thing that they didn't find from Cho at the crime scene. If investigators found hairs and they stuck out enough that they collected them from the apartment, if Cho didn't match with any of them, that would mean something. But if the hairs are a match for Cho, that would have implications as well. I mean, right now, only the glove fragments are a match for Cho. But if Cho's hair was also at the crime scene, that would look very, very bad for him. 
it would condemn him even more than he already is. So, I don't know, could we run mitochondrial testing on the hairs and see if they're a match for Robin Cho? We asked Butler if that would even be possible. And she said, hypothetically, yes, it would be possible. Hypothetically? Well, there are some caveats. First and foremost, her lab would actually need to have the extract from the hairs in their possession. Right, and it's been like a decade since they originally looked at, so... But she checked for us, and they do still have the extracts. They do? That's great. What else do they need? So if we want to find out whether or not these hairs could potentially be Cho's, we would need a reference sample, a hair from Cho. But Cho's in prison. Well, as luck would have it, Siri still has a reference sample from Cho. Then let's retest, right? I mean, unless they need something else. They do. And this last thing is a little tricky. We can't request that the hairs be tested. Instead, Butler said we would need a signature from one of the people involved in the original testing. So the prosecutor, Frank Santoro, or the defense attorney, Andrew Flyer? Right. I mean, look, I would imagine that they both have good reasons not to test these hairs. Santoro won the case, so why is he going to mess with that? And Andrew Flyer, Andrew Flyer was fired by Cho. And then Cho's new attorney included ineffective counsel in their motion for a new trial. So, I don't know, I don't, I don't see either of them signing a paper to test. Well, we told Flyer about what we had discovered. And to this day, he stands by his old client. He still believes he's innocent. We told him what we'd like to do. And he actually signed the request. He did. So Siri's going to test the hairs. Yes. Officially, Siri case LP.9382.12 has been reopened for further testing. And next time on the season finale of Strangeland, we get the results of the hairs found at the scene of the crime. Will this new evidence further condemn Robin Cho? Or will it be in his favor? One way or the other, we'll find out. The results of the new DNA test are next on Strangeland, produced by Western Sound. And it all starts right now. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.